Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Okay, well, thank you for being here tonight. If our reading sounded a bit familiar, it's not because you're in Philippians overload, but I actually have been given a section that overlaps with the second part of last week's passage. So thanks, Erin. Just before we start, let me open for us with prayer. Dear Lord, just be with us tonight as we gather and help us to put aside the things that have um, occupied our minds today, Uh, good and bad, uh, frustrating or concerning, we just ask that your spirit will be with us, move in us and open our hearts and minds to the things that you want to impress upon us. Help me, Lord, to speak clearly and faithfully to your word and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to think back to what Ruth told us in week one, that this was a letter, a personal communication and one continuous piece of writing from beginning to end. So various translations insert verses and some of them group the passages in different ways. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to work uh, from the passage as you've got it in your booklet uh, with one small edit. So I'll just get Kate to pop that up for me. If you look in the second column here and just make your way down to where it says keep your eyes on those who live as we do and just insert a line there and then also when it just before he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And what that will do for you is it will break us up into four sections to look at and then we're all quite literally on the same page. So it's a continuous letter and it's a continuing story. As we focus on this small section, we see Paul write, not that I have already obtained, referring to something that's already been described but not yet finished, But I press on toward the goal, looking to the future. 
And right here and right now, he says, look to God to enable you to take such a view of things and live out your decision to follow Christ and claim all that he's achieved for you by acting in a certain way. These words remind us that God has a plan and that we're moving forward through time. There are things that have happened, there are things that are happening now, and there are things that are still to come. We'll just pop up the next slide. Okay, thanks. We're going to work our way through the four sections sequentially, and we'll start where Julianne left off, with Paul's encouragement to himself and to the church at Philippi to press on toward a particular goal and a particular prize. Then we'll have a look at the second and third sections, Paul's view of maturity and the need for strong positive examples and what threatens this maturity and stands in opposition to Christ and the cross. And finally we'll move through to Paul's reminder of what life looks like for them now and what the future holds. To set the scene for where Paul is going, I'm going to tell you a story. Well, 30 years ago, my husband and I were in Paris. We were very newly married sort of on an extended honeymoon. We'd been travelling and working with short-term mission in India and Pakistan for six months. Then we went to England to see some of the family on my dad's side and finally we ended up in Paris. Our money was running pretty low and we stayed in the youth hostel. But even though we were married, we didn't have enough money to stay in the couple's room, the honeymoon suite of the youth hostel. So Philip was in the boys' dormitory and I was in the girls' dorm. Fast forward and we were fortunate enough to be able to return to Paris to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. Both of us had something that we really wanted to do. Obviously we're pretty keen to share the same room, but for me it was visiting the impressionist painter Claude Monet's house and garden. And for Philip, it was running the Paris Marathon. I don't know how much you know about marathons. In some races there's just one winner and everyone else is forgotten. In the Olympics, there are three place-getters. We rarely remember silver and bronze, even if only point something of a second separates them from gold, and everyone else is forgotten. But in the Paris Marathon, they celebrate finishes. As soon as he signed up and registered, he was allocated the T-shirt. They had a list, and his name was on it. Before he even left Australia, the T-shirt was printed, it was ready for him, it had his name on it, it was already his. And all he had to do was finish the race and claim the prize that was already there waiting for him. Sounds easy. And you can see him here, I think he looks pretty good after 42 kilometres. Nice backdrop of the Eiffel Tower. But the thing I want you to um, really see, of course, is the T-shirt, that he was a finisher. He had an impressive list of accomplishments that would surely get him over the line. He was a paediatrician, husband of four, brought up in a loving, faithful Christian home. In high school, he had even run a time that would have seen him qualify for the 1500 metres at the Sydney Olympics in the women's event. (laughs) It's still pretty fast, that's right. (laughs) He had an impressive list of things that made him who he was and contributed to him being in this place at this time. Well, if you know anything about endurance events and long-distance running, an analogy that Paul is very fond of in his writing, you will know that once Philip had set his mind to the task and fixed his eyes on the goal, a fair amount of detailed preparation went into this. 
He established a well-timed training schedule. He had a certain diet. He had to let other things go to single-mindedly pursue this goal. There were all sorts of things that might have sabotaged his race or prevented him from even getting to the start. And I'm sure that there were days when even he had doubts. But as far as the officials of the 2014 Paris Marathon were concerned, he was already a finisher in their eyes and his prize was already set apart and just waiting to be claimed. But it couldn't be claimed at the registration desk. It could only be claimed once he'd crossed the line and reached his goal. We can turn him off. <laughs> Last week, Julianne showed us Paul's impressive Jewish pedigree and his realisation that those things were hereditary to his standing as a Jew and those things that he'd achieved in his own strength based on personal choice and conviction couldn't be used as currency to make him acceptable to God. But rather, Paul was at pains to contrast these things with the worth that's found in being in Christ and accepting what he has done for us. Julianne emphasised Paul's encouragement to press on, to press on whilst resting on the certainty that Jesus had already done it all. So it's here that we pick up on Paul's words and move forward with him as he unpacks a little more for the Philippian Christians and for us what it looks like in practical terms to press on and reach for something already gained for us. Well, as we've seen in previous weeks, they are a group of new Christians in the middle of the Roman Empire brought together with common faith. And Paul wants to reassure them that despite opposition, despite the fact that he's in prison, despite the fact that Epaphroditus has been ill, despite the fact that Jesus has not yet returned, the main thing is still the main thing, life in the resurrected Jesus and Christ's life in them. So what does it mean when Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold for me? It really is these two things held in tension and held in balance. A life resting on great certainties. We have the abiding truth of the cross and we have the coming of the Lord Jesus. And it's a life of personal commitment, effort and determination lived out in the beautiful mess, brokenness and disappointments of life. We are saved by grace to do good works and we are encouraged and at times commanded to set our hearts and minds to fulfilling all that it means to be redeemed and transformed. Or as Jane put it for us, so that we can fully participate in the relationship with God that Jesus has opened for us. There is more to be done. Live up to what we have already attained. Because we're saved, it can even be easy to think, why doesn't he take us now? But he's determined that we are to live here, depending on his grace and provision, to show his character and be his influences in the world for a period of time, a short period of time that is our physical life. Paul is seeking to honour that, but it's not the basis of his certainty. His assurance is fully in what Christ has done for him. Now Paul in sections 2 and 3 is looking a little more closely at two of his key uh, pastoral concerns for the church that Ruth identified for us in week one. The first is the need for unity or as Ruth explained from the Greek the word koinonia or community which we see comes initially to them through a common faith as they gather in Philippi but then not surprisingly 
this community is going to be sustained through maturity and assisted in this by godly example. And then Paul has a strong warning about the challenges that come from outsiders, from those, he said, whose minds are set on earthly things. Paul writes, All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Paul's showing us not only what is true, but also how to respond in community to the truth. And Paul's confident of what he's saying. He believes that every mature Christian will want to be like-minded with him in these things. A Christian who is mature, who's ready, in training, who's fit, such a Christian will fully will fully approve of and seek to adopt this pattern of a disciplined life. And where we're still growing in our understanding and we're still trying to work out what that looks like for us in our own context, if we get it wrong, God will graciously realign us because if our heart's desire is to honour him, his desire is to make us like his son. Paul has a confidence that comes from experience and conviction. He's not being arrogant He has things to say that are relevant and helpful and not to do so would be unhelpful. To leave them to their own devices would be a false humility and a denial of his Lord. Paul urges them to join together in following his example, to be unified, of one mind, determined together to do this thing. He isn't speaking out of a boastful spirit but rather as a guide to the church and as a standard of Christian living. And he doesn't hesitate to put himself out there. This is part of his apostolic calling. As an apostle, he has been identified and set apart to lead the church. And he can see that the life that he's been enabled to live is not only exemplary, setting them a good example, but it's also normative, a standard for normal Christian living. So we have Paul. He's the leader, but he's also a brother. He says, follow my example, brothers and sisters, and with gentle grace, he allows the I, as in I, Paul, am doing all these things in the first paragraph, to becoming all of us, joining together in section two. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Well, this was all happening only about 55 to 60 years after Jesus had been alive. Remember that a Christian is a new phenomenon. Christianity is new. It's different to Judaism. It's different to emperor worship. It was new and it's essential that they have an example of what that looks like. What does a Christ follower look like? And Paul is saying, look at me. You don't have to do all these Jewish things that once were law, but now you need to press on and persist in other things and this is what it looks like. And because Paul is trying to be like Christ and not estimate himself by his own achievements, His example is still relevant for us. Trying to think of something that has been new for us. Do you remember how you first felt when you joined Facebook or set up your profile and began using Instagram? You didn't know its full potential. It was all new and it was unknown. What did it look like? You needed direction for how to engage with it. Nothing that had gone before had prepared you. You may have experimented or more likely a friend may have shown you how to add filters and stories, how to connect links to your bio, and the very first time you worked out how to DM someone, which my children will tell you is not that long ago for me. 
And if you have a son like my Samuel, he can explain how various algorithms are employed to take advantage of maximum exposure. So, something that's new. So, what a Christian should look like is new for Paul's readers. And here Paul offers them as himself as their most helpful example. And it's helpful for three reasons. Firstly, because he has a correct self-estimate of himself. Knowing Jesus has brought Paul to a very different self-estimate from that of his Pharisaic zealous upbringing. This is the new Paul. He does not consider himself more highly than he ought. He's moved from being self-centred to Christ-centred. And this accurate self-assessment is a springboard to progress. Paul is single-minded. He has a single-minded determination that's a point of emphasis in his letter to the Philippians. In fact, in all his writings. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, concentrate, stand firm, work, run, labour, he's proactive, he's single-minded, he's focused. Paul is not saying forget God's past mercies. Paul's not saying forget the lessons of the past. But what he's moving us into here is the need to identify the things that hinder our present efforts and our future progress. And Paul has an absorbing desire. What is it that holds Paul's gaze as he turns from the past and preoccupies himself with the future? It is the goal. It's the prize. So Paul gives himself as an example and he says, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Well, I'm a great crier. I cry at any movie, whether it's funny or sad. My children will tell you that I walked in on the final episode of the first series of Australian Idol, having never watched any of it before in my life, and I'm in tears as one person wins and one doesn't, and I didn't even know who they were. I was at Fig Fig Tree Soccer Oval one day, waiting for my son Thomas, who was then about 16, and he was referee for an under-eight soccer game. And this little guy kicked the winning goal and immediately burst into tears. He was the goalkeeper, and he just kicked an own goal. (laughs) Now, I'm the mother of the ref, for goodness sake, and I'm on the sidelines in tears. I mean, who doesn't hate an own goal? (laughs) Well, Paul is a great weeper, but for causes far more weighty than I often shed tears for. He wept over those who he taught, and he wept over those he rebuked. In section three, he warned about error and he wept over those who held it. I tell you again, even with tears, he's talked to them about these things before, but now again, even with weeping, his distress here is deep and real and raw. Many live as enemies of the cross. The cross. The cross is where we see God's absolute holiness and purity and our sin, our rebellion and abject inability to save ourselves. It shows the love of Jesus to put aside heaven and suffer because he loves us even more than we love ourselves. We see where we fall short. We see our pride where we try to please God by doing and not doing certain things. The God of self is evident in all of us. But here, Paul is talking about those who continue to live as enemies of the cross. Their gods remain themselves. They have a devotion to self-indulgence. 
They worship themselves, their abilities, their perceived goodness, their independence from God and each other. He says their destiny is destruction. Paul looks beyond this world to the next and he finds no hope for them there. Their God is their stomach. Their appetites dictate their lives. Eating, drinking, indulging, seeking maximum satisfaction. Paradise on earth. He says their glory is in their shame. They find cause to glory in things of which they ought to be ashamed. He's building up a real picture and gaining momentum. They sound horrific, don't they? Detestable people we would never want to associate with. But interestingly here, unlike other places in his letters, he doesn't elaborate on the specific nature of their behaviour. Researchers tend to agree that Paul is probably talking about two groups of people who were associating with Christ and were active in Philippi. The Christ plus people who wanted to add extra requirements such as circumcision to salvation and another group who were abusing their liberty in Christ and taking it as a licence to engage in every sort of indulgence. Paul is definitely warning about the pull of the world away from Christ. And so when they read the letter, the Philippian Christians could insert the names of those from whom this behaviour was evident and who Paul perceived posed a real threat to their unity and to their end goal. And we can read it in a similar way. We should take heed of the warning Paul is giving and fill in the blanks for those people and the kind of behaviour that is currently threatening to draw us away from Christ. We need to be on our guard, don't we? So that we don't make the mistake of thinking that we are free from such things or that we could never be like them. Because having said that they were bent on destruction and set on shameful behaviours, his summary sentence of how they act is actually very simple and very telling. Their mind is set on earthly things. So perhaps not so very different to some of the things that capture our attention or our time or our resources. The only difference being that we might glance or something might catch our eye and their eyes are firmly fixed away from the cross to earthly things. But Paul warns against them lest they seek to influence us and draw us to their way of thinking. Sometimes these are very obvious, but sometimes these are more subtle or secretive or a little more grey. Again, social media is an apt example for our time. And if you're not active on social media, you may consider what books or magazines or TV shows or films you watch, which celebrities, musicians, sports people, politicians you follow. I'm not on Facebook, but I'm on Instagram, so we're going to use that as the example. Think about the people you follow. Whose choices fill your feed? Who are the influencers in your life? Think about who you are influencing. Are you being honest and helpful when you post? And when you like, are you being wise and are you a faithful representation to others of what it looks like to be a Christian? Do the people, the voices that inform your way of thinking in all areas conduct themselves in such a way and does your engagement with them encourage you to conduct yourself in such a way that your eyes remain on the prize? Or are you glancing ever more frequently toward earthly things or in fact, like those who live as enemies of the cross, are your eyes fixed on earthly things? 
Believe me, preparing for this talk made me have a look at some of my own decisions here and it did cause me to unfollow some accounts and not because they were necessarily inappropriate or specifically unhelpful in and of themselves. Some of them are specifically Christian but even there I can find myself easily relying on their quotes from the Bible rather than reading the Bible for myself. Some of them are social commentators whose ideals align pretty closely with my own. Others are seemingly harmless, occasionally practical, sometimes helpful, not because I would be ashamed if any of you had a look at them, but there were perhaps for me just a few too many about lifestyle, about perfect meals, a perfect house, a perfect holiday destination, a good example of where life for me could get a little blurry, a little grey around the edges. Things that catch my eye, that take my focus off the prize and are designed to feed me the devil's lie that I can be fully satisfied and that life can be perfect here on earth. This is the danger that daily faces the Philippians and this is the danger that we face. Still held by the curse in this world until Jesus returns, held in the tension between the way of life and the way of death. And I've given you a little bit of a chance in your group times to explore those two sections and what that might look like for you. Examples of people may be historical figures or people you know personally, but also be courageous, be, be brave and honest and think about who you might be influencing and who might be influencing you and what might be potential danger zones that take your eyes off the prize. Well, having been very blunt with them, Paul wants to bring them back to their current condition as the new church and set their eyes once more upon the prize. But our citizenship is in heaven. And he reminds them again of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that is still to come. They are waiting for their saviour to return. It hasn't been that long, about 60 years. The early church had an expectation that his return would happen in their lifetime. So this would have given immediacy to their pressing on so that when their Lord returned, he would find them faithfully upholding the cause. They eagerly awaited him. Our problem can sometimes be that we just don't. I mean, it's been so long after all. So what do we know? We know that God's timing is not our timing, that he is faithful, consistent, trustworthy, Lord of heaven and earth, and he is reigning. The story isn't over. Right here at the end of this part of the letter, we are reminded that he is the Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth, that he has power and authority and everything. Everything is under his control. And when he comes, we can look forward to our prize, ready and waiting for us. Paul describes it here as the transformation of our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Suddenly, what has been a concern for how to live and conduct ourselves while on earth, a scene full of all its striving, suffering and sacrifice, is once again suffused with heavenly glory. The Bible gives us some images of this prize, the crown of righteousness, the privilege of worshipping him, of seeing his face, his name written on your forehead, your name written in his book, no more tears or suffering, people from every tribe and nation, perfect love, joy and peace, 
greater than the heart of man has ever conceived. The unending presence of the Lord and us, us standing among the great multitude of finishers. Thank you so much, Vanessa. Um, lots of great things to think about um, in our groups. So it's group time now. Um, please quickly grab a cup of tea if you'd like one um, and head off into your groups. Again, if you are not sure...